You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I want to recommend to you a great new podcast called Right Now, hosted by one of my good friends, Stephen Kent. Stephen and I have worked together for years on several projects, and he's grown into one of the smartest voices in the libertarian movement. His show Right Now hosts young, diverse, and enthusiastic voices about freedom and limited government. People like Brad Palumbo, Andrew Heaton, Hannah Cox, and even some people that we have disagreements with, like Matt Iglesias. Guests are well-versed with the depth of knowledge on the issue they're discussing. So you're going to learn something from every episode because he's trying to make you think instead of making you angry, which is something we are all about here at the We Are Libertarians podcast network. His rational perspective is greatly needed in this age of hyperbole, and you need to subscribe to his show right now on your podcast app or on YouTube. Again, the show is called Right Now on the Rightly Network. This episode is brought to you by HP. Whenever you do your best thinking, the HP Spectre X360 is ready when inspiration strikes. With power save for battery life and focus mode to multitask, you can do your best thinking whenever and wherever it happens. The HP Spectre X360 2-in-1 convertible PC with Windows 10 saves battery life for whenever an idea hits you. HP Spectre X360, a more thoughtful laptop. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remsa Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics podcast at secondprintcomics.com. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, Gabriella, you were probably the first one to tell me about this, I think, as far as like six months ago. Um, the PRO Act was just something that was starting to, you know, get rumbles about around the policy world. And then they started talking about it. And now it's it, is it on Biden's desk or what, what? what is going on right now? So let's start with this. What is the PRO Act? Break it down to me like I'm stupid, because I am. And where is it right now? Because this shit is actually starting to worry me. You should be very concerned, as your listeners should be, too. And thankfully, it is not anywhere near President Biden's desk. However, it is starting to be, let's say, divvied up into different portions of the Senate reconciliation process relating to the budget. They want to put taxation elements of the PRO Act Yet I'm surprised they haven't included the ABC test and other things. But very simply, what the PRO Act is, it's mislabeled and kind of misleading being called this pro-worker bill, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. And it's billed as, the, it's billed as this lovely piece of legislation. It's going to rectify the problem of worker misclassification. It's going to ensure sunshine and lollipops, essentially, what the propagators of it are pushing for people who feel that they've been left out of the economy or they have grievances with different corporations. However, as you start to examine the bill, read beyond just the title and 
comb past through kind of the tweets from big labor proponents, you see a lot of holes and you see a lot of problems inset in this bill. And in the Senate, it was put out, presented as a 30-page bill. It hasn't been deliberated yet in the Senate because Chuck Schumer has said he needs 50 co-sponsors. Three Senate Democrats have said they are withholding support. Those would be Senators Mark Warner of Virginia. Interestingly enough, he is a holdout because he takes issue with one of the key provisions, the ABC test, which I'll discuss in a bit. And also the Arizona Senators, Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema. Although they are largely sympathetic to big labor proposals, they have said they have not wanted to sign on to the bill. And Kirsten Sinema had said in a private meeting with the Chamber of Commerce of Arizona, she will not support anything that undermines small business. So, oh, I mean, she shot down the the increase in federal minimum wage. She did. And everyone was like, burn the witch. And everyone else is like, she's pretty awesome. So I, I could totally see Kelly going for that, especially as he's less popular than her by like significant mm-hmm. margins in Arizona. Uh, I mean, really, it's going to be Republicans that return cinema uh, to um, uh, to her seat in, a, in, you know, like three, four years when she gets like re- reelected again, it'll be Republicans that deliver her there. But Kelly, uh, you know, he, he was always, he, he's always one of those people where it's like, he has to prove a lot more. Yes. But it's very surprising that those three have been holdouts. I thought Senator Joe Manchin with West Virginia, obviously him being the wild card from West Virginia, kind of the, being this broker. And also with West Virginia, just statewide implementing measures to protect independent contracting signed into law by the governor, Jim Justice, Big Jim. Uh, he kind of voted against, or he kind of signaled his support for a bill that much of his state is largely against the state legislature, governor, much of the small business community. So it was really surprising. I heard that. And I saw that he somewhat brokered some deal with some clean energy company, that if he supports this, he'll get this sort of promise. Very weird in that respect. But he has privately now, I guess, expressed some reservations about it, despite lending his backing to it. But the PRO Act stemmed from this California legislation. And unsurprisingly, a lot of really crappy bills come from my home state of California. Seems to be a trend. (laughs) Yes, it is a, let's say, petri dish of very kind of authoritarian status policies, unfortunately. And that's really sad because California... I love it. It's been romanticized a lot. It's a great place to grow up in. But yeah, policy wise, it has not been winning lately, unfortunately. But speaking of the kind of birth of this, this came from California Assembly Bill 5. And this was passed and signed into law and signed into law, excuse me, on January 2020. January 1st, 2020, it went into law. Sorry, it was signed into law in September of 2019 by Gavin Newsom. Then it went into law January 1st, 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And it contains a provision called the ABC test, which defines whether a worker is an employee or independent contractor. And it contains three prongs. If you allow me to read them, I want your listeners to know the context behind them. This is also similarly found in the PRO Act as well, but this is the inspiration from which the PRO Act came. So there are three prongs. There's A, B, and C. A reads like this. A person is independent of a hiring organization in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of that work. And in fact, the person performs work that is outside the hiring entity's business. And C, the person is routinely doing work in an independently established trade, occupation, or business that is the same as the work being requested and performed. So a lot of people in media are very troubled by prong B. And since this went into law and was implemented immediately upon its impact, 
about a million independent contractors had lost their work. And I don't know what the updated numbers are, but millions of people have been displaced or at least lost a bulk of their income. And it didn't help that COVID came and they had different lockdowns and small business closures, of course. But this has really done a number in California. It's had very deleterious consequences. This has even drawn the ire of both people on the right and people on the left and people in the center. It's more so beyond both. Uh, but it's drawn widespread bipartisan condemnation, even in as kind of a far left place like California. And in the November 2020 election, voters in California voted to endure, voted to undo provisions of AB5, which directly attacked gig sharing ride companies like Uber and Lyft. So they voted almost 60 percent in a very left leaning populace to undo provisions of AB5 that protect the right to gig work. And so it's a very unpopular bill. Obviously, when it was put to a vote, people rejected it. We do see nationwide even that there is this animus and growing skepticism about collective bargaining in this country and public sector unions, especially across education, in business. And anytime there have been attempts to unionize different companies, whether it is Uber and Lyft, or most recently, if you remember the Amazon plant in Alabama, about 70% of the workers voted against unionization. And obviously Alabama's right right to work state. And and MSNBC called them sellouts. Yes. Yes. And you can, I mean, look, I have criticisms of some of the big tech companies, whatever, privately, we all have our complaints about different entities, but I was really happy to see the fact that workers there were able to think for themselves, not be uh, coerced by outside pressure into supporting something that would really work against their interests. It would essentially take away their ability to negotiate on their own behalves. You'd have a third party or a union come in and basically dictate what the parameters of their work scope would be, payment. You'd have to pay dues probably in the hundreds, maybe thousands, uh, given that they're very greedy, unfortunately, and want to take worker money and not represent them when push comes to shove. So when it comes to the PRO Act, it contains the ABC test. They say, oh, no, it's not going to be like California's AB5. You for sure, right as well, know that it's going to be uh, AB5 in a very similar manner. It is almost a carbon copy. You read through the proposed legislation, and actually in the House, they passed the PRO Act again a second time. You had five Republicans joining Democrats and only one Democrat joining Republicans uh, to both approve and also oppose it respectively. So it was really disappointing to see people in the Republican Party, members of Congress, vote in support of this. And they come from more union areas. I can understand that, but I don't think they understand the gist of the legislation they voted for. But like I said, in the Senate, it has no movement. They also want to incorporate it into the American Jobs Plan. And under the guise of passing this for worker freedom as part of human infrastructure and Something that doesn't build up people's livelihoods shouldn't be considered infrastructure. That's something we've been trying to argue, especially if you're going to take away 59 million American livelihoods that partake in some form of flexible work or gig work or part-time work. You can do this in a full-time capacity like I do as an independent contractor. You you could moonlight, uh, supplement your work that you do full-time with part-time gig work or outside of work gig, gig work and different opportunities, basically flexible work in the freelancer economy. And in I addition, mean, like even for me, like a fourth of my income comes from independent contracting. I do, 
And th- this is all like, and, and, like I, you sent me, you sent me some articles straight before this. I did catch up a little bit. I, I had largely been ignoring this, not because I didn't think it was important, just because it wasn't on my radar as much. And now Certainly, I'm looking yeah. at this and I'm like, shoot, I'm kind of late to the party. And this is not a good situation to be in as this is all probably right. heading in a bad direction. When, when I was at Freedom Works, that was when like Bill de Blasio was trying to basically limit the number of actual vehicles in New York City that could operate under Uber or Lyft. They were basically going mm-hmm. to put them in a separate category from the medallion system, which was basically worse than if you were a medallion certified uh, taxi driver. Mm-hmm. A- and then they had like the Ride Sharing Protection Act or something like that. No, no, it was it was sometimes like ride sharing justice or some 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 stupid play on words that they tried doing in California, they tried doing it in Louisiana, and they tried doing it in Arizona and Washington State too in 2015-2016. And basically it was one of the big first attempts to essentially tell Uber and Lyft. Lyft was not, didn't have the market share at the time that Uber did, still doesn't, but it was basically their first attempt at saying, no, you have to give them health care, you have to give them basic um, mm-hmm. you know, employee rights you know, stuff like that. And it's like, it it was always one of those situations where it's like, you could break it down to a very simple thing. And I think the term is like Occam's razor. The most obvious and simplest answer is usually the right answer. And and really it came down to the fact that nobody actually wants to abide by the intention and the stated outline of the contracts they sign. And then people want to ignore it and just surpass it with something else. And this is why in in Northern Virginia, before I left, I I stopped talking to Uber drivers about whether or not they liked their jobs because I like talking to those guys. They're always interesting. Those guys and gals have cool stories. They're they're never just an Uber driver. So if you're in a car with an Uber driver, talk to them. You always get an interesting story. But my problem was you had these people, and this is even prior to COVID, who were driving like 40 plus hours a week. And it's like, you know, this was never meant to be a job. And I've seen the contracts and stuff for Uber. Anyone can see it if you just go to the app and you don't have to become a driver, but you can just go through the process to read everything. You're an independent contractor. You're, you're, uh, the amount that you're paid per your rides will, you know, cover mileage, gas, and then your profit. And then some is taken back to Uber or Lyft. It's a done deal. It was always meant to be something that moms with kids in school could do while the kids are away and the husbands at work or students who needed some extra income on the weekends. It was never supposed to be a 40 hour a week job. So here you have these people, instead of actually working a regular part-time or full-time job, they turn Uber into their full-time job. Now, in some cases, they can make more money. If I could just drive people around all day and not deal with the boss, that's fine. But I go into it knowing that it's not like I joined a taxi medallion union or something. I get none of the benefits from it. So now you've got these people, and this has been festering for years. It happened in 2020, uh, like in in January, February 2020, right before COVID. He had the massive uh, crowds of people in San Francisco and Los Angeles rallying to unionize Uber. And then you have everyone else who's actually working. And they're like, no, if you do this, you're, you're not just cutting out the people that need this to survive. You're also cutting this out for the people who could make their rent buy extra groceries, save some money, invest a little bit because they had actual jobs and then this was the side income. So it seems to be that everyone is ignoring what the actual purpose of these ride-sharing apps were, which was supposed to make it easy for consumers, safe for consumers, and 
side income. It was never supposed to be a job. Absolutely. And they say the same, they say that, uh, independent contractors or most workers who fall under the umbrella of a gig worker or an independent contractor were exploited. They say they paint the broad brush of saying that anyone who works under these parameters is exploited. So they also lump in deceptively independent contractors, Uber, Lyft drivers as well. So they say the contention that they have with freelancing in general is, oh no, it doesn't guarantee benefits. And oh my gosh, like people are improperly misclassified. And I know instances of misclassification and they are very egregious. I think I was in a contract that was like that early in my career and it was lamentable. However, the 59 million of us who freelance in some capacity are not misclassified as employees or not misclassified, excuse me, as independent contractors. And we have to be employees. We don't want the employee arrangements. And I'll talk um, more about the reasons why people choose to go into this on their own volition voluntarily, but also in the the legislation before I kind of talk about the appeals as to why people are choosing to go into freelancing, especially with different pressures politically in the workforce, uh, just the flexibility people want to be afforded. Also contained in the PRO Act, in addition to the ABC test, there's a provision, not explicitly stated, but towards the end of the page 33 or 31 in the Senate version, it explicitly states that they want to replace right to work laws, the 27 right to work laws with collective bargaining arrangements. I forget the proper term. I think share associations. Uh, I'm probably butchering the exact name, but you comb through the legislation, go to the last page, and they say essentially they want to undo right-to-work legislation, essentially eliminate the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, and make everyone by default who falls under the umbrella of freelancing into a unionized worker, meaning that they'll be able to collect dues. They'll be able to control your work scope. They'll essentially limit your potential to take in and rake in as much income as you want to. They who's essentially ben- Who's benefiting from this? Big labor. The SCIU. AFL-CIO, and actually a great report from the Washington Free Beacon. Your listeners should check out uh, Big Labor and their Democrat allies are going to benefit lobbying-wise about $3 billion per every two election cycles. So this is a basically in-kind contribution to Big Labor. It's a, it's a, well, it's that, but it's also a giant vote harvesting scheme. It's It's also a violation of the right to free assembly. Like I, uh, Right to free association. So I'm I'm gonna be really unpopular for a second. I have never liked. I I'm I'm all about choice, and I'm about to juxtapose myself for a minute. I'm all about choice, but I don't like right to work laws because yeah, I know you should see the look she's giving me, folks. I I, I anticipate it oh, no. because if somebody wants to form a union, they should have the right to form a union. And the thing is, and we, we see this in Wisconsin, we see this in um, you know West Virginia with the coal miners. I always use the coal miners as an example. If people want to unionize, they should have the right to do it. And you know it goes inverse. Just because a place has a union does not mean that you should force union membership upon people. So my thing is, if you want it to be fair and equitable, you should you should have it both ways. You should have them have the ability to form a union if they want it, want to. But if somebody wants to work somewhere and not join the union, they should get that option too. You know, I'm not I'm not for killing options on either end. But when it comes to this, I mean, millions of Americans are private contractors on a part-time or full-time basis. And, you know, it's it's already hard enough. And you've been doing what you've been doing for almost half a decade now. You have to do all your own taxes. You have to do all your own retirement investing. You have to do all your own health care and everything else. It's not easy. 
So you throw all this extra layer of shit in there and you're just going to push people back into working a corporate job that they didn't want to do in the first place. And it's so hard to find a traditional job. I struggled. You and I have talked about this, like even with all my different credentials and my experiences, I struggle to find my mid-level career in DC. I admit that I'm not ashamed of that. I've encountered countless young professionals who face the same challenges like I do because it's really difficult to penetrate the workforce here. Unfortunately, with people staying in their positions for decades, they're not creating opportunities for younger people to move up. It's kind of monopolistic despite it, people it, touting it, to be free creates, enterprise. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it also creates like a, 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 you know, what I call like negotiating for the bottom. You've got these people who are willing to undercut themselves. I'm willing to work X amount of extra hours for this person. I'm willing to do X amount for less money. You're negotiating for the bottom when that doesn't help anybody because it doesn't help your employer because you become a commodity instead of an asset. Because now you're just negotiating to get the best value instead of what's going to produce the most for your for your business. And you know that that was why like I was happy. So like after um, you know af- after everything that happened last year and I'm looking for work, like I worked as a freelancer full time for the second time in my life. And that was doing pretty well, but I still took a job at a warehouse making $15 an hour working 16 to 24 hours a week because it was good side income. And I did that while I was looking for work. I only had to do it a a month. Luckily it was, it was at a warehouse in Dallas, but it was good money. And I got to choose my own hours. If I didn't want to work weekends, I didn't have to work weekends. It was a good situation for me. And it was, it was good extra money. But situations like that, they're, they're going to go ahead and look at my overall income for the year. I saw this in another piece that examined it. So you take the income I'm making as a part-time employee for that warehouse. You add that to the income that I made as a freelancer and everything else. And they're going to look at the total hours worked. And then they're going to look at you and they're going to be like, okay, pick one. And it's like, uh, I can't pick one. If you were working at McDonald's in the warehouse – you could split. You could split that. You're paying taxes on both of those. You're a part. You're 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 a dual part-time employee. But if you're a part-time employee and a freelancer, they're gonna be like, you can't be both. So then it just makes everything more awkward. It's going to create a lot of legal headache on the labor policy side. This is essentially to give government more oversight over small businesses, one-person businesses, self-employed people, and that should make everyone nervous. I also want to talk about a few other provisions that are really alarming too, that don't often get discussed. I should shed light on them a little bit more. But there's also provisions of, they're going to undermine the traditional secret ballot election process for union representation. If you're in a union or you're, you, you, know, you, you work in that framework, that's also concerning. It's not just independent contractors. They're going to make it even more difficult for union members who may not like all aspects of collective bargaining. It's also going to strip employees of their legal rights, including the right to have a standing in union representation cases. It also is going to, obviously, I said, redefine independent contractors. It's actually going to undermine people are not talking about this. And this makes me so frustrated. It's going to undermine franchises. How many people do you know? I mean, you, you've probably encountered a handful of people across the way. People run franchises. I've met franchise owners along the year. They're also going to be affected by this because they're not strict. Oh, are you like somebody who owns like a franchise of like, you know, a McDonald's or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. Anything, any franchise of any major company, they're technically going to be targeted too. It's it's very disconcerting. Well, I mean, I can kind of I can kind of see that because what people think of franchising as is you're owning 
you know, you're, you're, it's, it's your business. You're just essentially borrowing the training, the branding, and the resources of a larger parent company. But that's also just not really the case. Because at the same time, you still have to go according to company protocols, company policies. You have to update with company changes. You know, it's like McDonald's. Everyone thinks that McDonald's is in the restaurant business. No, McDonald's is real estate. McDonald's buys up the property. They build the actual commercial uh, location. And then what you're doing as a McDonald's franchise owner is you're buying a stake in the business built on top of it. That's why McDonald's ticks off so many people because McDonald's isn't like a franchise owner. They'll just go ahead and say, okay, tenant, not franchise owner, tenant, it's time for you to leave now. And then that makes it re- really weird. So for that, I mean, it's it, it, it it's bad on that front, but you know, I, I don't think people should be too surprised by that being a threat posed by this. Yeah, but it's still, very, I've heard from different franchise owners who say, and maybe they have multiple revenue streams as independent contractors, 1099 filers. And I think they're just thinking big Is picture. Is that how they file? I am not certain. I don't want to put out information that is misleading. We'll leave that one. <laughs> well, we'll, maybe I'll research after the fact and you can add an addendum uh, to the show once we finish recording. But um, yeah, I, I don't know exactly their filing if it's W-2 or 1099. We're going we're gonna to figure that out at some point. It's going to bug me all night. <laughs> but they're also going to be lumped into this law as well. And I want to point out some interesting statistics about initial polling. And this is from the Chamber of Commerce, who... I've been a little disappointed in recently, but they have redeemed a little bit for me with their opposition to the PRO Act. And they commissioned a new poll from the Forbes Tate Partners. It's a bipartisan government affairs firm. And they found that there's sweeping bipartisan opposition to many key tenants of the PRO Act, which is something we should be talking about, those of us in conservative and libertarian circles. We want to talk about issues that bring people together. Opposition to this really horrendous piece of legislation can actually help bridge the divide. I'm super confident of it, and I'll talk more about that. But their polling found that opposition was pretty bipartisan with 68% of Democrats, 65% of independents, and 74% of Republicans expressing their concerns about the prospect of being forced to pay a union due upon accepting a job. So the law would Mm. make your acceptance of a job conditional on whether or not you have union membership. They also said 57% of voters, including 47% of Democrats and 69% of independents, don't believe workers should be forced to join a union as condition of employment versus 34% who said they should. So there is interesting polling coming about from bipartisan sources. Certainly big labor has their polling that says, yes, everyone is universally in support of this. But you you look at the more serious sources that are not riddled with bias. And once people are informed about this, they learn about it, they see what happened in California, they start to get very concerned. And that's encouraging to me. But unfortunately, that sentiment is not registering with the Biden administration, nor their labor department, both of them individually with President Biden, and also the new labor secretary. They've both publicly come out publicly come out and stated their firm support for this. Biden's campaigned on this issue. He reaffirmed his support for California AB5. He said he would support the PRO Act if he were to be elected president. And he is directing his labor secretary if he's unable to pass this through Congress or through the American Jobs Plan. I have no doubt he's going to have Marty Walsh issue a secretarial order, or maybe Biden will put an executive order out there to pass this in some form of another if Senate reconciliation in the budget process is not going to work either. So they're really adamant about it. But you talk to the wider public. I think there is momentum brewing against 
this piece of legislation. And I always tell people like, why do we have to make or clamor about it after the fact? Like, why don't we kill it in its track in its infancy before it makes its way, passes as a bill, uh, goes to reconciliation and signed into law. I think it's extremely important to sound the alarm. And that's what I've been trying to do individually. And I've kind of put back my activist hat, which I hate doing now because I try to be objective and, and you know, not put my opinions out there so much, but like for this, it's personal and I feel so compelled to do it. And with the new fellowships that I have, I'm going to certainly be sounding the alarm more on this issue. And a lot of workers who like having independence, whether they do it full-time or part-time or on a project per diem basis, people are going to really be disgruntled with government. If people thought government is going to be regarded and and have a very high opinion, or if, if people thought that government is going to be in their good graces, if this were to be implemented, people are going to become very distrustful of big government again, I hope, because we're reeling in from the pandemic. Small businesses have been savaged and bombarded and really have not seen any help. Not that government should come in and, and save them from their problems, but they've yeah, been but, left but out. It's like I got, so I, I got out of the pandemic smoothly compared to a lot of people. Like I, I, and this is funny, like I made more money in 2020 than I ever have in my life. And Me it too. Came, Me yeah. too, unfortunately. <laughs> I hate <laughs> like to admit it, was, it but it, was it, a it weird happened. Situation. I got taxed a hell of a lot more, but like, and, and some and some issues of some of my former employers, I, I got taxed way more than I should have. But like, you know, I got a 10% pay cut when I was working at the Washington Times. And what helped me subsidize my income was writing newsletters and website copy on Fiverr.com. And it's like, you know, the, the big mistake information I'm seeing from this. It's obviously coming from politicians, from a lot of the corporations who, who are pushing for this type of thing. But I remember seeing Bernie Sanders putting out these videos of this dude who's like in his 70s driving an Uber at like 4 a.m. And he's like, you know, I came to this country. I don't read English very well and stuff. And I drive for Uber all day, but I don't have health care. I don't have all this. I deserve to do it because I'm working it. It's like you could have gone and gotten a part-time job working you know, basic retail or stocking or something else where you could have gotten some benefits. People don't like to talk about this if they're against, you know, because there's this big animus against, uh, you know, basic labor jobs and stuff like that. And I think basic labor jobs are amazing, but you get part-time, you can work, you could be a part-time employee and get benefits, especially now is you've got companies offering giant signing bonuses. You can get Mm -hmm. a $500 cash signing bonus to deliver pizzas for Domino's um, at least 16 hours a week. That's two shifts. That's two shifts. Incredible. $500 in cash. And, And it's one of those situations where it's like, you know, you don't deserve to be an employee. So, but you have all these people like, oh, what, you don't want him to have health care? I'm like, no, in fact, actually, I don't think he deserves it. He's stupid because he signed up first. Yeah, I'll say it. he's stupid. You signed up for something knowing you're going to be a contractor where you're on this by yourself. You also got to pay your own taxes because they're reporting it. So I hope you save that extra money that you're going to get taxed on. And, and then you're working overtime for less money. That's a you problem. But now you're going to make it harder. And the great thing I love about the gig economy is you can get into things like Fiverr. You can drive cars as long as you have a basic license. You can go to Upwork. You can go to all these different sites where all you just have to do is be willing to do the work. Imagine what happens when all this happens. Could you imagine what Uber hiring practices are going to be like? Like now it's not just, okay, I want to do this. Now I know where I can get the money, so I'm going to get the money. Now it's almost like, you're going to have to apply for the job. 
And that's going to phase a lot of working capable people out of the market. I think it's just the natural progression of the economy moving away from a traditional model to this more flexible model. And I think the discussion about portable benefits, I think that should be had, but we need to find a free market solution to it and not attach it to your place of work. I think there should be a system in place where you're working multiple gigs, you can go to a portal, find the best rate for you, premiums, et cetera, and then pick from there and not have it attached to your p- place of employment. And I think a lot of ProAct supporters in, in their- you're, you're talking for like, you know, healthcare benefits, life insurance. Yeah. That stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that, does, that, that does exist. Now, most places it's all a cart, but like you can do that. And I think one of the biggest things, and if I'm going off on a tangent, please reel me back in a minute. I, I think there's this obsession with healthcare and a 401k. Yes. It's, and this is, this is going to, there's already gonna piss off liberals. So I don't care about like this point, but it's like healthcare in the United States is actually pretty accessible. Like it might not be great, but it's pretty accessible. I like, think it is pretty great for, you can get, you can get Medicaid. I would pricey, rather, I, I would rather, pricey, but good. I would rather have Medicaid in the United States than socialized medicine in Canada or another yep. country. Medicaid, you're going to get seen by somebody who's maybe so-so at their job because a lot of doctors refuse to take it. That's why you're getting the people who are who like need the patients as doctors. But like, you know, we we there's this lie that, oh no, it's just so inaccessible. No, you can you can meet like $170 deductible a year and pay like 15, 20 bucks for insurance. Am I saying it's going to be great? No, but like this idea that it's it's not accessible, that that's just not true. And I think conservatives often fall into that. It's like, well, we need to make it more accessible. It's like, how is it, how is it less accessible now than it was even 10 years ago? Like, I think they just need to have, what is it, interstate kind of trade with relation to healthcare, like competition, interstate oh, right, competition. You can't, you can't. And direct primary care maybe to, right, to make it more yeah. competitive. I think those are reforms that we should be talking about more. They often get talked about casually, but I think those are serious. It we, will draw we have, down the price. Yeah, we have we have HSA accounts here that were established under Scott Walker. Nice. So health savings accounts. I, I don't do it, but I like the option being there. Uh, you know, it's like you know, pe- people are obsessed with four hundred one ks. It's like if you're if you're obsessed with uh, you know getting a matching contribution from your guy from your employer, like that's one thing. But otherwise, it's like a four hundred one k is a glorified savings account. You can go ahead and get a separate traditional or Roth IRA, put six grand in there if you're if you're able to do that, and then just let you know let that roll. It's probably better than four hundred one k in some cases. I, I mean, it's this idea that we have to be obsessed with benefits, and I think. We're, we're, Your driving force into a job is shouldn't be benefits. You're going into employment or starting a business because you believe in an idea or you offer unique services and you think you can be competitive in the market. If you, how many people can get that opportunity to work what they want to do? Sure, but I don't think like my deciding when I was working for Leadership Institute, like I liked the job description and okay, the benefits were fine. <laughs> And Obamacare came in and I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of my healthcare benefits. <laughs> like it's going to fund plastic and plastic surgery and nose jobs and breast augmentation, but I, I have to still pay out of pocket for health and dental. So it really wasn't anything. <laughs> and that wasn't LI's fault. That was the fact that Obamacare was imposed on basically yeah. every company in, in the United States. It's like but, men, you know, men are, are paying for like prenatal treatments. It's like, I don't think men need that. These days they might with the way but, things are going, but back then you didn't need that. Sure. I mean, coming out of college, it was a nice cushion, but it wasn't the primary driving force. I was like, I just want to have a stable job because I don't want to go from internship to internship. 2012 was an interesting year because we were uncertain politically what was going to happen. 
I realized I didn't want to do traditional journalism or going the J school route, but through jobs, kind of the job route uh, then, because there was no assurances that I would get a job. It was highly competitive. It's even worse now to do that. Although I, I do freelancing on a uh, freelance journalism kind of on an independent basis myself. So I was like, I'm just going to choose this job because the draw is really good. I'll have a good workplace environment. I'll get to travel to a region I've never been to the Northeast at the time. And okay, great. There are some added benefits literally for your health and dental. Um, and it was okay before Obamacare went into effect, but it was, it was not ideal. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm solely going into my work because of these benefits. I think that, that you shouldn't go into, you're going to hate your job. If you just get benefits, you have to at least like what you're doing too. Yeah. And I think that I only started considering this over the last couple of days. Um, my, my uncle and, and people can hear the the track of this in last week's episode, but my uncle who works full-time in the insurance industry during COVID, um, you know, lives in Orlando. He took a part-time job driving, like uh, eight to 12 hours a week for Domino's. That's how I knew about the Domino's signing bonus. So he just does that to supplement income for his family. He's making an extra 300 bucks a week with tips. It, it's work. And he wanted to do it. He's like, I, I need the extra money. I have the extra time. This is super easy. Anyone can deliver pizzas. I'll do it. So he's walking out of his car back to Domino's. And this kid, who's probably like 16, 17 years old with his girlfriend, walks past my uncle, looks at him, laughs and said, don't you ever get tired, man? And my uncle's like, tired of what? And the kid's like, you know, getting in your car, delivering pizzas over and over again, assuming that that was his full-time job. And my uncle looks at me, he's like, do you know how a job works? You have to work to make money. Mm-hmm. And you don't know me. And wh- 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 why would you even say that? I see that there's this giant correlation between people that want to maximize benefits and protections for the simplest and most minuscule work out there, but mm-hmm. also have the highest disdain for any level of work. And I'm not saying this as somebody who has no experience doing manual work. I graduate from college. What's the first, one of the first things I do? I become a mall cop. I become a best-selling author, <laughs> thanks to Gabriella. What do I end up doing? Fun fact. I'm an intern. I, I go work as a cashier at GameStop. No one cares about your college degree and your best-selling nope. book when you're trying to sell them Madden 2019. But, you know, I, I do that. I, I sold makeup. That was such a crazy story. I can't believe you did that. You got, Hey, Bill's got to get paid. (laughs) Bill's got to get paid. Even if your life is under threat. (laughs) I quit. I just want to emphasize. I did quit that job. And then, you know, even after everything else, the Washington times parlor, everything else, a second book, I still end up going and working at a warehouse because the one thing I learned through all of it is that you got one, you got to work. If, if you're capable of working, you don't have a job, you're a bum. You got to go work. There's no excuse not to be working. And, and I have people who, who are clients and stuff who are consulting for coaching and stuff like that. And they're like, well, I don't want to do that. People will make fun of me. I'm so qualified. I shouldn't do this. And it's like, how is complaining about your qualifications going to pay your cell phone bill? How is it going to pay your rent? Like the reason why I love low-skilled 
labor jobs and why sometimes I get kind of paranoid because I fear the robots and automation is because that's the greatest universal basic income there is. It's a basic uh, job. It's uh, meant for teenagers, people who need extra income upstart. and people between work and upstarts. How many people who, who are millionaires now started because they were working at McDonald's or something by day and then they were working on their dream projects at night? It's this it's, disdain for work that bothers me more mm-hmm. than anything else these days. Yes. And funny enough, I tried really hard to get like a yogurt shop job, minimum wage job. I could not get it in high school. It was so upsetting. I really wanted to work in a yogurt shop, but I did a lot of free work, <laughs> volunteering, selling popcorn and uh, different, uh, what is it? Like food items at a volunteer, like movie night in the community I lived in. So I was able to get some work experience, mm-hmm. exchanging money, giving product, thing of that sort, even on a free basis or volunteer basis. Did they pay yeah, you no, in food? Yeah, I, no, I got no, pizza. That was, that was my first job. I got paid in Chick-fil-A. I got paid in pizza and other cool refreshments. So yeah, although I didn't get to work in the local yogurt shop, I learned other valuable skills, working free jobs. Uh, and I think those go a long way too. I think, yeah, talking about the admonishing of work, people also will not do free. I mean, if you're experienced, you should not be doing free labor. Certainly, capitalist all the way. You have to 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 work what you're valued for and, and be pay, compensated for what you're valued for and your qualifications. But I think when you're starting out too, you do have to sometimes take non-paid work. You learn so many different skills. I would have not picked up the skills that I have today had I not taken on different oh, volunteer experiences. I worked, you know, my first like, you know, jump into the, the public space was doing copywriting for Austin Peterson. And like, I never got paid for that. But I did it knowing that I was getting a lot of knowledge out of it. I learned how to use WordPress. I knew I learned how to do research. I was building a name for myself. I was still getting something out of it. But then again, I, I was also a guardsman in, in the army. So like I was still getting some money. It, it's not like the situation. And this is what bothers me about a lot of young people that come to DC where, where they work for free for months on end of this promise of something. And then the, the answer they get when they're like, can we talk about a job? Can we talk about a raise or something else is, well, we'll talk about it later. And later never comes. And at that point, you should just realize that you're being used and leave because mm-hmm. why would, because there's more dignity in delivering pizzas than working for free for an institution that looks good on LinkedIn when they don't respect you. I agree in that circumstance, especially with how expensive this area is. If you do come to DC, definitely make sure that the opportunity you take does offer a little bit of compensation or at minimum housing and food and different amenities that can offset your costs or any doubts and fears you have. I also want to uh, kind of explain what the future of the American worker looks like. And I think ProAct supporters, bless their hearts, they view workers kind of from a 19th century prism, a 1930s prism where everything is horrible. We have meat packing factories that are running amok. Work conditions are terrible. They're, they're viewing things from a traditional work scope lens and they're stuck in the past, unfortunately. And the American worker is not an industrialized person working with their hands today. It's people in many different fields that span different levels. You have working professionals, you have people working blue collar jobs, all these different types of levels of, of employment People are doing it now kind of in an untraditional framework. And having this thinking really does hold progress, economic prosperity back. And it's going to be to the detriment of the majority of American workers. So 59 million Americans partake in some form of flexible work, independent contracting, moonlighting, part-time work, gig work. And the union membership, union participation 
uh, is really starkly in contrast with that. So of those 59 million people, what is it? 36% of the workforce, they comprise 36% of the workforce. And recent Bureau and Labor Statistic numbers actually pointed to the shrinking influence of unionized work in the country. It's now 10.8% of the workforce. So there's really, unless you have and your line of work prescribes you to join unions. Although if I were a union worker, I wouldn't be happy with the representation because look what they did to the Keystone pipeline workers. They gave, they, where were they? They were absent oh, for you negotiating. You don't hear from those people anymore. No, <laughs> no. So it's like, I, if I were a union worker, I would not be represented by the union bosses that represent me or the people who collectively bargain or negotiate my salaries on my behalf. I wouldn't feel represented and I would find a way out of that. So it's not like, pro-act opponents are hateful of people who work unionized jobs. I know there are plenty of good people in unionized jobs. It's my qualm is with the people who head up these unions and who are greedy and are not really servicing their workers and representatives whatsoever. And like I said, it's just a political tool for them to usurp power and control because voluntarily, they're not going to be able to. Public opinion is shifting against them. When people voluntarily choose on the ballot or are told or are or asked what their opinion is of unionization, most people will say they oppose it in its current form because it takes away power from individuals. It goes to one political party, all the different union fees collected, and you're not represented by them. I get where you're coming with it, but I, I, I will contest in one way. I think when we, when we see a lot of these polls come out, I think Rasmussen used to do a lot of the ones during like uh, the, the 2016 campaign over, you know, wh- where unionized workers specifically were leaning. And it was almost always Democrat uh, in a year where in all the manufacturing states, they overwhelmingly went for Trump. That's what broke the blue wall um, in Midwest. But it was like, when it comes to unions, it's like, I feel like it almost needs to be broken down more. I, I like the Calvin Coolidge and the Ronald Reagan approach. P- government employees, public sector employees have no right to unionize because it goes against the interest of the general public. You know, cops can't do that and go ahead and then just say, I'm not showing up to work in some cases. He had the Boston police riots when Coolidge was I remember that. governor and, you know, he slammed down on that. So that's one reason why I also don't like police unions. Um, it, it causes a bunch of problems with that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, teachers unions, uh, if, if you're, if you're working for the public good in a sense like that, and you try and walk out, such so as what they did in Wisconsin, there's a reason why all the, why everyone basically destroyed the unions here and everything. It was because you're, you're, you're impacting students. So it's like, you know, when people talk about this, it's like, you're not talking about people who work for Uber that want healthcare and all this other stuff. You're going usually for the people that already have it pretty well. They're just getting greedy teachers, cops. I know that's going to bother some people and anyone else who's in a federal or state level job. The fact that they unionize, that's what muddies the water for everything. A teacher should not have the same union representation as a West Virginia coal miner. It's not the same. And that's, you know, that's where I come back to my to my stance against making right to work constitutional in some places. Like when it was on the ballot in 2016 in Virginia, I voted for it at the time. But looking back at it, it's like, you know, we, we throw these blanket terms out there and that's what makes it worse. That's why I go back to my example of the 60 year old immigrant who can't read English, who's driving 40 hours a week for Uber, who wants health care. And you've got these lefty journalists, with the blue check marks, and they're like, and I'm not saying anything about blue check mark people, but it's like, well, he shouldn't have to be working. He's in his 60s. I'm like, actually, he should be working because he can't read English. 
He came here with nothing. He's not a citizen, but he's working. So I, I, don't, I don't see why there's a problem with that. And, and I mean, that's what makes this whole thing so much worse because, you know, I, I, start, I tried to look at the actual, you know, document length of the PRO Act and everything else. There's no way Joe Biden's reading that. There's no way he can <laughs> cognitively understand what's going on there. And that's what's terrifying because I can only imagine how much extra stuff they're going to put in there and make a hell of a lot worse. I forgot that we voted in the right to work amendment. I thought Virginia already had it enshrined somehow, but I remember now we did vote on that question. I voted yes too to, to allow right to yeah, work. Yeah, it was to make it constitutional, to, to okay. just codify it, but it was never a state where that was much of an issue. Like, you know, we don't have- We were one of the first states to have right to work, some provision of it. Yeah. I think we were one of the earliest ones. It started The right to work movement, there's a reason why their offices yep. in Springfield. Yep, Springfield. It, started, it started in Virginia. It did. Yes, yeah. a lot of interesting things started here. But I also, this may be controversial, but I think we do. And there's I just really said cops shouldn't have unions. Everything <laughs> is downhill from here. I think we also have to examine JFK's 1962 executive order allowing okay, for public. I'm stupid. Uh, Explain that to me. Okay. I only know and can comb through a little bit of the basics, but there's really no federal law apart from the National Rela Labor Relations Act that guarantees collective bargaining, but. JFK's executive order strengthened it for public sector unions. And that is where not only for the PRO Act, but also for teachers unions and other industries that have too much power wielded through unions, or they want to make it so everyone has to be a default unionized worker. Um, because I think most people can agree as free assembly, right to associate People, however they want to associate, they should. But unfortunately, Proc supporters want to make all of us union employees. We they don't want to coexist with us. That's a that's a problem to an earlier yeah. point that you made. But um, it may take examining this executive order that he put into place in 1962. And unfortunately, this administration wants to basically blow up the National Labor Relations Act, take out this right to work provision, and again make it just default. Everyone's going to be an employee. You're going to have to be unionized as a condition for employment, and when people are given the choice to opt out of it, they do largely. And like I said, I think union workers are getting the shaft. They don't feel represented. That's why the Janus case was so successful and, and why that gentleman won at the Supreme Court. I forget the exact uh, the exact details of what he was contending with. I don't know if it was uh, his dues were going to a party he didn't support or what the exact contention he had with it was. But I thought that was really interesting that the Supreme court even ruled oh, he, he, in he his favor. He felt that, and, and he was right, that a majority of union dues were just going to political contributions. Yes. He did have a contention with, with it going to political causes. Yeah. So he won at the court, which was phenomenal. I think they just celebrated the anniversary of it. So we see people having a conversation about teachers unions, and that's very appropriate, very timely. Some of us were of that mindset early on. I've always had a very big skepticism of teachers unions. I had my first political lesson oh, in teachers unions, they're teachers unions in California, and they were just picketing all the time. I hate to say it like and reduce. I had like several, I would say a few really good teachers and maybe they were in support of, uh, of, let's say protesting or whatnot. I don't remember uh, so much, but I, I just remember early on that they would just protest. And one of my first political inclinations was to have disdain for just their behavior because they were paid to work nine months. They got benefits. They got really nice salaries and they were unhappy. And I was like, why are you unhappy? Like, isn't your primary motivation to be 
working for the interests of children, not so much about like how much money you rake in. So I noticed that early on going to a school in one of the most affluent areas in California and the country in one of the more blue states. And I was like, oh, this doesn't sit well with me. And certainly I've had friends who disagree with me about labor law, some who support collective bargaining. And we don't talk about that when, when push comes to shove about that issue. But I think a lot of people, even skeptics and people who may have been in support of unions or had members who were with respect to the PRO Act too, I think people just see how much hunger they have for power and stifling small business, stifling independent work. And I think it's going to possibly foster change in in policy. Maybe it'll prompt people to elect more, let's say, centrist Democrats. I I spoke to a gentleman who wants to challenge the Democrat in his district in Palo Alto. He's an entrepreneur. He's a second generation American. His family came from China and Japan, and he does not like where his representative in Palo Alto, a fellow Democrat, stands on the PRO Act. He thinks it's not innovative, it's restrictive, and it's going to violate a lot of rights with respect to how people identify as workers. And so maybe it'll prompt Democrats to select and vote in people who are for independent contracting or for freelancing. Republicans have largely coalesced behind support of freelancing, although they're not taking this issue more seriously as they should. I like think for the people that are fight that you know claim to you know it, it's it's like why well, I barely vote Republican anymore. It's like oh we're for we're for limited spending spend trillions. Oh we're gonna go ahead and get the budget on that print billions. It's like this should be the one thing that they lead on. It's like this is your basic especially over the past year. I feel like people are already forgetting all the like like dystopian shit we went through in 2020. It's like we were fighting for our basic right to have an income. It's like, oh, you can't go to work. You're not essential. Who are you to tell me that? Right. And they want to now control how you can decide to work. That's very scary. If you ask me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how and, many people, how many people were at least able and, you know, uh, I'll say this and then somebody else will say, yeah, but homes went into forbearance and everything and rent got delayed. It's like how many people were able to feed their children because they got a job like, you know, doing Instacart. Do, do it, the do gig it work helped save a lot of people. Yeah. Available gig work. And you saw a lot of women, young people go into this line of work. You see actually a lot of millennials and Gen Zers even taking up freelancing as a full-time career. Influencers too. A lot of them are not full-time employees. A lot of them are contracted with different I businesses. Gonna, I was going to ask you about that. Like, Yeah. If know. they have multiple gigs multiple endorsements, no way they're an employee. They definitely have to be filing 1099. I'm really surprised a major influencer has not picked up this issue. Although they have other pet political projects that they like I to mean, take it's, up, it's but so they're going to be affected when their bottom line is impacted. It's so weird though, because my, I, I, my favorite channels to watch on YouTube are finance channels. And my favorite ones are uh, Andre Jick, um, Graham Stephan and uh, meet Kevin, uh, Kevin Pathrath, who's ironically is running for governor of California as uh-huh. literally meet Kevin Pathrath, um, <laughs> which I, he's running as a Democrat. I think that's hilarious, but it's like, you know, those guys actually make their primary income from YouTube now. Like they'll say, oh, well, you know, I have real estate and I have passive income and everything else. But each time they show their overall income for the year, they're making millions from YouTube. So it's like, you look at this and it's like, are you going to become YouTube employees now? What does that, what's that going to do to your content? 
you know, you got Kevin and, and this is where it's really weird because these guys, I call them moderate Democrats because like they go, they, they, they talk very fiscally conservative. They are fiscally conservative. They're in practice, but when it comes to other things, like they always kind of let it leak that they're liberals. And it's like, you're going to get to the point where it's like, it's going to affect you and all you, and all you influencers saying, Oh, well just here's how you make extra income. Go drive for Uber and everything else. Kind of hard to drive for Uber when you got to go to the Uber job fair because you can't just send in an application through an app anymore. It's like, this is going to impact the people who think that they're safe. Mm-hmm. That's when they're going to be like, guys, we need to do a, t- a dozen videos talking about why this is wrong. Imagine if, if you think YouTube censorship is now bad for a bunch of things other than just politics. Imagine what's going to be like when YouTube treats you as an employee. God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. No, they'll have a lot of concerns at YouTube, the bigger conglomerates. I just saw that. What is it? Facebook now wants to they're going to create a fund, a billion dollar fund to pay contributors, content creators. So how are those people going to be filed as 1099? They're not going to be employees of Facebook. Same with also YouTube is going to be compensating people for content creation. Yeah, for like medium. For shorts. 1099 for royalties for stuff like that. Yeah, so I would expect those big tech companies would actually eventually come out against the PRO Act. There are are groups that are starting to speak out against it, but uh, this is where we can have the corporations in our good graces where if they realize this, maybe like, you know, them saying like, Hey, Whoa, this is going to be problematic for us. And it's not exploitation. People know what they're getting when they're signing on as a contributor or a contractor with us. So, yeah, I I think it's going to extend to a wide spectrum of work, whether you're working as an influencer, as someone who is independently employed as a one person business and kind of strangling your potential with this and limiting how much you can work a lot of people forget that with businesses, they don't start out as big businesses or corporations or even brick and mortar shops. A lot of people start things in their basement or their kitchen, depending upon the line of work. I was literally at the Harley Davidson Museum, which is in Milwaukee. And in the parking lot, they've got this little shed that looks like something out of some backwater down south. And it says Harley Davidson on there. And what I didn't realize until I walked in is that is a model replica of the shed that the that the Davidson brothers started wow. Harley Davidson out of. That's incredible. But yeah, so it goes basically back to the premise of entrepreneurship. You're going to innovate. You're going to try to disrupt things creatively. And I think people think disruption is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And you're going to stifle innovation if government puts a chokehold on your potential about how much you can earn, how you can identify, how you file your taxes. If you're not being misclassified, and in many instances, you're not if you're voluntarily filing as an independent contractor. So it just has a lot of different implications, a lot of problems inset in it. And that's why, regardless of how you vote, where you live, how you orient yourself, but if you care about small business and innovation, it's important to oppose this piece of legislation or to be equally concerned. And, you know, I try not to put political call to actions out there, but if your listeners are concerned, I have lots of resources, a great organization to the Institute for the American worker just came about recently in the most recent years. It puts out great explainers on the pro act and about independent work in the United States. They're a great, great 
outfit. And also AFP has been really good. I've worked with them on an influencer basis. Interestingly enough, it's my first influencer arrangement. And I've tried to help draw awareness. We host different social media discussions. I've made some videos for them. I've sat in on panel discussions remotely for them. And so AFP has also been very good Americans for Prosperity Virginia with highlighting this issue. And you start to see a lot of franchise organizations coming out against it. You see a lot of individual Democrats, a lot of individual Republicans, independents speaking out uh, against the bill. We have a grassroots movement afoot with it. There's also a great Facebook group called the Fight for Freelancers that I'm loosely involved in. It's not really anything like super organized, but it's a, a, a forum where people can convene and talk about what's happening with the PRO Act, share their story and be involved in that respect. So I really am confident that a way to bridge kind of the political divide here in the United States is to focus on issues that can bring people together. And this is not phony bipartisanship. This is an issue you can support without betraying your principles one way or another. And I think more people are going to start to see this from the avowed Biden supporters to the avowed Trump supporters and everyone in between. So that's why I'm voicing my concern. I'm going to focus on this, like I said, on my different fellowships. I've written about this exclusively at Town Hall, and it's a really important issue that shouldn't go under the radar. Absolutely. Well, I, I learned a ton in the process. I'm both inspired and horrified that it's gone this far, but, but better late than never, especially before it's signed. Gabriella Hoffman, thank you so much for coming on as always. Thank you, Remzo. Really appreciate it. Folks, you know, I do the show for free. I do. You don't have to pay to listen, but if you want to do something basic, free free to do, and it costs you nothing but a few seconds, a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you're listening to the show across Al Gore's amazing internet. Let's people know about topics like this, the fun we're having, and so much more. As always, I'm Reps W. Martinez. Be good, be safe, and I'll talk to you later. Confused about the news? If you want to sound smarter when talking with your friends, our mission at the We Are Libertarians podcast network is to inform you about the world in an independent and irreverent way. We take current events far more seriously than we take ourselves. Get all nine of our shows at wearelibertarians.com or in any podcast app by searching for We Are Libertarians. This is Chris Spangle, host of Liberty Explained and We Are Libertarians. And when you first become a libertarian, it's really confusing. There's all these new ideas that you've never heard presented by all these people that you don't know, and it can be so hard to grasp all that quickly. But we've got you covered. Go to libertyexplained.com. We're going to break down issues. You can search the tags and find out something quickly, watch a video, or listen to a podcast from some of the top experts in libertarianism. And we also have video playlists that we've collected and a list of the top podcasts. And we even have a podcast ourselves with Julia Geyer, Levy Rainey, and myself, where we answer your questions about libertarianism. So go check it out right now, libertyexplained.com.